Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today, though you may notice we look a little different. Robbie, where on earth are you right now? I'm actually in Aspen, Colorado to speak at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And I'm looking behind this camera, I'm looking out the window of my hotel room at just like the most picturesque forested woodland mountains. It's uh, it's very beautiful. I'm in a very Zen mood. So maybe our uh, our banter today will be less combative. We'll, so, we'll so what you're saying is there's an equivalent view that you normally have when you're in the studio with me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, yes, we have a lot of interesting things to talk about today. We'll discuss Joe Rogan's informal endorsement of Ron DeSantis and look at some polling that shows more and more voters are maybe getting on board with that idea. But first, of course, last night Liz Cheney continued her tirade against Donald Trump and the entire Trump wing of her party. Let's watch that. At this moment, we are confronting a domestic threat that we have never faced before. And that is a former president who is attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic. And he is aided by Republican leaders and elected officials who've made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. The reality that we face today as Republicans, as we think about the choice in front of us, we have to choose because Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, I I think that there's not that much to disagree with there. The question is whether or not there are going to be professional consequences for her in the long run. And, of course, uh, whether or not it will have any impact on the party. You know, that was Cheney from the Reagan Library in California. And this comes as the January 6th committee has subpoenaed former White House counsel Pat Cipriani, who was a key figure, uh, sorry, Cipollone, who was a key figure in Cassidy Hutchinson's viral testimony. According to The Hill, Secret Service says it will respond to the allegations Hutchinson made, accusing Trump of trying to grab the steering wheel of his vehicle and lunging at the Secret Service uh, when informed he would not be able to go to the Capitol on January 6th. Hutchinson's lawyers have stood by their client, saying that she, quote, stands by all of the testimony she provided yesterday under oath to the committee. However, several outlets have since reported that Bobby Engel, the lead agent for the Secret Service, also the driver of the vehicle, will not corroborate Hutchinson's account. According to NBC's chief White House correspondent, a source close to the Secret Service has said that Engel and the driver are prepared to testify that it never happened. So I don't, you know, we don't want to get too hung up on steering wheel gate. Have they minted it steering wheel gate yet? I'm sure they will. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's trying to trying to Zapruder tape this. Where was Trump exactly in the car? Was he, you know, was he behind the front passenger seat or was he all the way back? Because there's like three rows of seating in the SUV. Um, you know, it certainly sounds in character for Trump, but now we have people saying it didn't happen. It could be something she heard had happened. You know, the way gossip and rumors start. So she could believe it happened, but it actually didn't. Or she could believe it happened and it did. I don't know. I don't well, know that re- it's, it's the most important aspect of this. Yeah, well, for sure I agree that it's not the most important aspect of this. And there is something frustrating about this story becoming the focus. One, because it's just the most salacious part. People are talking about yeah. it, even though it's not, I think, the most meaningful part in terms of what it means about Trump and whether or not he was encouraging uh, the march on the Capitol 
by armed people with his knowledge, you know, all of those aspects of it, I think are being under discussed because of this. But also, you know, she was recounting a secondhand story about what happened in the car. And that is the danger of hearsay, right? That's why it's not admissible in a court of law. I'd be interested to see what uh, the other testimony might be from the driver or anybody else present. But it, I think, goes to her credibility somewhat, potentially, if this ends up not being true, but also just goes more so to the credibility of whoever recounted these events to her. So again, I don't think it's dispositive and is ultimately a distraction from a lot of the other more substantive aspects of her testimony. Right. Uh, So going back to uh, Liz Cheney for a minute, you know, the interesting thing is she just has no, she has a lot of credibility, I guess, among kind of mainstream Democrats now because of the stand she's made against Trump. Look, I think the stand against Trump is principled. Props to her for that. No, you know, no, no beef there. But she is a figure in the Republican Party who represents, you know, the Bush Cheney there's not, I was going to say Bush-Cheney wing, but there isn't even a wing. It's just a, a kind of memory of a different Republican party that is not, that is not popular among the current today's Republican party mm. because, you know, she is known as an avatar, as an advocate for the kind of Bush, Bushian, Bush-esque, whatever the right adjective it is, a foreign policy that Trump at least uh, rhetorically broke with and that many of his supporters were eager for for even more of a hard clean break with so i don't she just doesn't have she, it, it's not like th- this is a a figure who can kind of speak to trump's base and explain why look you might like his policies or you might have liked his presidency but what he did was very wrong and very bad and he should be held accountable for that She's just not the figure that can make that case. I think that's just the reality because she doesn't have she's not in the she's not in the club. You're making a really good point about, I I think, the Democrats uh, underestimation of the extent to which Trump's shift on foreign policy, the new kind of anti-interventionist thread among parts of the Republican Party that really was the bedrock for the break from the more traditional conservatives. And I think that if Democrats were more cognizant of that motivation for that break, then they might be able to address it more and offer some of these undecided voters something in the form of the Democratic Party. But Democrats kind of cloaking themselves in the latest conflict, the Ukraine flag in in Avatar becoming a symbol of kind of Democratic Party fealty is not doing the party any favors uh, to the extent that there is a rising frustration with America's, um, you know, global imperialism, especially when things are so um, stressed on the home front. Right. No, absolutely. Well, as for Hutchinson, she's now D.C.'s newest resistance it girl. Here she is as the most popular in news and politics at D.C. magazine Washingtonian, proving, you know, once again that former Trump staffers can make their way back to the good graces of D.C.'s social circles. Uh, you just have to renounce him, I guess, at some point, and then you can be, you know, a celebrity or a or a or a resistance uh, hero. And look, I mean, this is being a little cynical. Obviously, she can, you know, maybe she thought it was time to speak up. I, I've heard enough. Uh, I, I feel compelled to do this. Both things can be true. That it is, you know, good and right to speak up about abuses you witnesses witnessed, whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, whether it's Obama, whether whoever is in the executive office if you see bad behavior uh we should we the citizens should want public figures to go public and to talk about it on the record right she this isn't 
she's not maybe she's spreading some gossip or things she heard but she's put herself on the record her name is out there and i think that's a good thing to do we can we can acknowledge that while simultaneously recognizing that there's an automatic and immediate path to fame and success for being a a a trump heretic i was a republican but i don't recognize the republican party et cetera. Et cetera. It, it dooms it might doom your chances in the republican party but there's a, a ready and willing mainstream media democratic political apparatus that will embrace you and celebrate you and, and mint you as, as the next hottest thing. Yeah, I think that's true, Robbie. But I also, at least, I, I watched most of the testimony, and it, didn't, it wasn't clear to me that that was her approach. She seemed almost mm -hmm. disappointed that the person, you know, the administration that she worked for, that she was proud to work for, um, ended in this way. Uh, and it seemed from her testimony that she was kind of looking around for someone to step in, as were many other members of the administration who were kind of uh, horrified by how far it had really gotten in those last final hours and days. And that it wasn't so much that she was rebuking the Republican Party or saying she was no longer Republican, but having you know, a narrow criticism of not even just the Trump administration, but Trump himself and his closest acolytes who were encouraging him to go to the Capitol and um, not make the kind of statements that some of his other allies and former allies were making at the time that who were recommending that he cool the jets, you know, make a mm -hmm. statement that would calm down the crowd, you know, assure people that there was going to be a peaceful transition of power, et cetera, until the last minute when they started making those threats about using the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. Right. And it was Trump has made it so that any criticism of him is criticism of the Repu Republican Party on a whole as a way to stop criticism. That way, if you're going after mm -hmm. me, you know, you're going after the entire shebang, which is not fair because Trump himself doesn't follow this rule. Trump feels absolutely justified in, you know, how many times does he attack Mitch McConnell like per day? Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, like the most important behind the scenes figure for for you know, laundering his agenda into legitimacy, for for you know, getting his justices confirmed for uh, and judges, and for for to the to the extent his agenda was successful at all, it's all Mitch McConnell doing it. Mitch McConnell can't say a single bad thing about Trump, but Trump can bash him and whoever else he wants, you know, eight hundred times a day, and and his supporters just accept that. Yeah, well, that's who he is. It's fine when he does it, but not fine when anybody else does it. I never quite understood that. But oh well, <laughs> I think they all they all learn their lesson about what happens when you go up against Trump uh, and don't issue that kill that 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 final ending shot uh, during the, the 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 Republican primary in 2016. And no one's most people aren't willing to to cross that Rubicon again. Although I will say we were talking about this a little bit uh, after the show yesterday. Tucker Carlson is probably probably the only one, one of the few at very least who could land a real blow to Donald Trump and his reputation. And if I were Donald Trump, I'd be on the phone with him immediately after the hearing, begging him to give me a sympathetic gloss. Uh, so we'll see how he continues to cover that going forward. And we will tell you what's on our radars next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, I'll tell you what, Robbie. Democrats did exactly one thing right. They made sure to fight for closed primaries, and it's a good thing they did, because if Democratic voters weren't faced with the prospect of full disenfranchisement right now, if they were to defect, I'm not sure how many would still be registered as Democrats come fall. 
Of course, Democrats have always fought harder and more efficiently to marginalize the left and block any pathway to a competitive third party than they have against the Republican Party. Leftists hearted in the Bernie Wars of 2016 and 2020 know this better than anyone. You almost have to admire the dexterity with which Democrats mobilized 501c3s with deep ties to the Democratic Party to paint Bernie Sanders as a racist and sexist, while corporate rags like The Economist published anti-Semitic caricatures and MSNBC tried to rushigate him during the mainstream media panic following Bernie's big Nevada win. When states actually manage to pass ranked choice voting by ballot initiative, the Democrats can be counted on to swoop in and undo the democratic process, as they did in New York and Maine and elsewhere. And who can blame them? Ranked choice voting, of course, means that if a vote is split between two progressive candidates, the second place candidate doesn't spoil it for the first. Voters can rank the other progressive as their number two, and votes will simply accrue to their second place choice if they best the number one seat. And without the threat, that voting for a third party would hurt the Democrats and throw elections to Republicans, it would be hard to convince many registered Democrats not to opt for, say, the Green Party, which is anti-war, anti-interventionist, pro-worker, and not completely captured by corporations. When the Democrats aren't fighting hard against pro-democracy measures like ranked choice voting, they're raising corporate funds in the form of shady super PACs and attacking progressive candidates who have the audacity to actually run to the left of the Democratic Party platform. See, for example, Nina Turner's race in Ohio and Bakari Sellers' new super PAC targeting Rashida Tlaib's seat in Michigan. By the way, the rationale given for spending a million dollars on unseating a beloved progressive while the Democratic Party faces a constitutional crisis and mass party defections? Rashida Tlaib isn't black. That's what they're really saying. The real reason that she defends Palestinian rights and Sellers is a close ally of pro-Israel groups like American Israel Public Affairs Committee. It wouldn't be a Democratic Party without imperialism being dressed up as identity politics. Now, I won't continue to regale you with evidence that Democrats hate the left more than they hate Republicans. You've seen them embrace Liz Cheney for president and give Bush's spokeswoman a cushy MSNBC gig, all while blacklisting leftists from their networks and likening Bernie Sanders, of all people, to Hitler. And you might already have heard that Democrats are waging a campaign to get Green Party candidate Matthew Ho kicked off the ballot in North Carolina for the crime of, I guess, showing up the Democrats with real progressive bona fides. The point is, the Democrats are actually very effective fighters when they're focused, which makes their complete ineptitude in the context of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey that much more pathetic. Many liberals who saw themselves as staunch defenders of the party against incursions from the left are now sounding a lot like the Bernie bros of yore, righteously angry that the party they gave money to, canvassed for, and ultimately won the White House, the House, and the Senate has little more to say in the wake of Roe v. Wade than go vote. Democratic leadership is pushing the idea that if you just go out and vote and if Democrats just win two more Senate seats, they can codify Roe, make it law. But many are pointing out that Barack Obama had a supermajority, ran on codifying Roe, and still declined to do so. Watch this flip-flop. Well, the first thing I'd do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. Uh, that's the first thing that I'll... Now, the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. 
Whoops, <laughs> thought we forgot about that one. Uh, the just vote claim is especially suspect given that the administration is still reluctant to commit to ending the filibuster, even if it got the vote. Listen to Kamala Harris dodge the question. Biden told my colleague Anderson Cooper he would be okay with eliminating the filibuster to pass voting rights and quote, maybe more. Would you support eliminating the filibuster in order to pass federal legislation for abortion rights? Right now, given the current composition of the Senate, the votes aren't there. But and would you so use that's the bully pulpit to but, say, yes, I support it? Well, here's the thing. I, I understand what the, why you're asking the question, mm -hmm. but the reality of it is we don't even get to really answer that in terms of whether it happens or not if we don't have the numbers in the Senate. And again, that's why I keep coming back to the importance of an election that is only 130-odd days away, because it really does matter. I sit as the as the vice president there for the president of the Senate. I was in the Senate for four years representing the state of California. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the votes, you can't move anything. We've seen countless examples, sadly, of that. This Senate, in the current composition, would not pass voting rights legislation. Jeez, Louise, the question is, if you get the votes, do you support ending the filibuster? No straight answer. I mean, do Democrats really think they're going to get a filibuster-proof majority? Or do they think voters are so stupid as to think that Democrats will do now what they wouldn't do with 60 votes? Even those Democrats who are sympathetic to how difficult it is to codify Roe are confused by the party's unwillingness to engage with any of the smaller measures they could pursue in this moment. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez immediately tweeted out a list of possible legislative responses, which included expanding the court, restraining judicial review, codifying the right to contraceptives, gay marriage and interracial marriage, and opening clinics on federal lands. But as quickly as she came up with good ideas, the corporate Dems started shooting them down. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said yesterday that using federal lands for abortion services would have dangerous ramifications. Wait until she hears how dangerous ectopic pregnancies can be. And in that same disastrous interview, Kamala Harris let slip that the real reason the administration won't pursue this option is that they're worried doing so will hurt Democrats' electoral chances in those states during midterms. Every statement that the attorney general has made. Can the administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right, that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek, but to receive the care where it is available. Is federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130-odd days away from an election, which is going to include Senate races, right? P part of the issue here is that the court has acted, now Congress needs to act. But we, if you count the votes, don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening in 130 odd days. I'm taking, for example, thinking of, of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's a the Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado. And we need to change the balance 
and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law, right? We say codified, mm -hmm. put it in law so that there will be no ambiguity about it. And I <sighs> Look, I, I don't want to violate HIPAA, but is she like literally allergic to answering a question straight? <laughs> Reuters reported yesterday that the White House is unlikely to meet bold Democrat demands after abortion ruling because they are, quote, concerned that more radical moves would be politically polarizing ahead of November's midterm elections, undermine public trust in institutions like the Supreme Court, or lack strong legal footing. How much legal footing did Mitch McConnell have while blocking Obama's last Supreme Court uh, appointment? Why on earth are you worried about public trust in the Supreme Court when it's already at 25% down from a not stellar 36% because of what you've been doing already? You think more of nothing is going to help? Look, this is the paradox of the Democratic Party. It wants to fundraise off of issues that it says are of existential importance. At the same time, it claims these are existential issues. The Democratic Party behaves in a way that sends the following message. Those existential issues aren't quite as important as the off chance of picking up a congressional seat. The consequence of this double talk is that Democratic voters are constantly being gaslit. They're tired of this abusive relationship, and it looks like they're finally ready to break up. Hell, the House leader, Nancy Pelosi, was literally fundraising for an anti-choice candidate last month, at the same time Roe was on the chopping block. Will the Democratic corporate media even ask her about this, <laughs> even once? You, you know it's bad when even the Republicans are surprised the Democrats aren't doing more. In hindsight, it looks like the Dobbs abortion decision was leaked in May as a trial balloon intended to release some Democratic anger before the real thing dropped. But who knew Dems would still be caught so flat-footed, even with advance notice? According to Julia Ioffe, writing in Puck magazine, we're also shocked at how little the Democrats were doing to fight them when such a clear path of retaliation lay open to them while they controlled the House and the Senate, said a Republican. If I were the libs, I would be putting forward a flurry of legislation, like making birth control free and widely available, the GOP, a GOPA told her for this article. If you say it's not widely enough available, go after that, cover the gaps. Don't just go for the really big stuff, just split the GOP conference as much as you can. Force people to vote. If the goal is really protecting women or advancing legislation that could actually pass, then take every potential approach you can. In other words, the author wrote, Republicans are saying that Democrats should be forcing them onto the record with votes that chip away at their stated pro-life position. If you're so worried about infant life, in other words, let's have a vote on free diapers and free childcare. If you say it's not a gun issue but a mental health issue, let's vote on funding the shit out of mental health. You heard them, folks. Force the vote. But Democrats, and even part of the cynical establishment checked out left, just aren't on board with doing, well, anything, it seems. Democrats are or have been trained to expect very little and to get even less. We may fill the streets with protesters, but without disrupting traffic, i.e. disrupting capital the way the Canadian truckers did, protests don't get you very far. Still waiting on that George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, by the way, Biden. I recently interviewed Jill Stein's VP, Ajamu Baraka, who lives in Colombia, and a Latin American expert, Ben Norton, 
about how Colombia's left managed not to just secure a huge electoral win and the victory of President-elect Petro, but also VP Francia Marquez, who is to his left and is a working-class Afro-Latino environmental activist. How did they do it? Well, the answer, movements in Colombia are so powerful, the politicians have to defer to them, not the other way around. Politicians there don't win endorsements on the basis of them being the lesser of two evils. Politicians are pulled away from the evils of corporatism toward the people-based agenda of the movement organizations because otherwise they won't get their votes. That's a lesson I hope the Democrats learn in this moment. Democrats want some blazing t-shirts with vote or die, but it's the Democratic Party that's on the brink of death. The new motto should be win my vote or die. After all, a party needs voters, but for voters, there's always the Green Party. So, Robbie, I'm feeling very strongly, like a lot of Democrats are so frustrated that this could be an opportunity for a third party to emerge if they can get organized. The Green Party is the most established in terms of having ballot access around the country for new parties. Obviously, Andrew Yang is working on the Forward Party. There was the Movement for the People's Party. There are options. But I'm feeling like this is a real turning point and a potential realignment for Democrats the way the Republican Party saw when the Tea Party started flexing their muscle and showing that they were willing to withhold their votes for candidates that did not attend to their interests as a group. Well, I'm always hopeful that third parties will do better and become more of a competitive force in American politics. I, I, well, I don't agree with, I'm sure, a lot of what the Green Party uh, stands for. I, I wish them the best of luck. I think it would be we would have a healthier democracy if third parties like the Green Party, like Andrew Yang's party, my own party is the Libertarian Party, obviously. And I, I, I want them to do better uh, because we need to break the stranglehold that the two party duopoly has on our system. Democrats feel no need. You're right to cater to their voters to win them over because they think that, well, their voters don't have anywhere else to go, so they can do whatever they want. And I think Republicans have maybe just recently realized after a kind of a lull in caring very much what voters think, that uh, that they actually, maybe they do, maybe Republican voters put up with less at this point than Democratic voters, which is a kind of odd indictment of, of what's going on. But uh, right now, the Republican Party is giving its most conservative voters exactly what they've wanted, and Democrats have no response to that, which is a very curious uh, place that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, to be uh, fair, a little bit more fair to Democrats, I think the argument that's made about why Democratic voters are more beholden to the whole vote blue no matter who thing is because from a left perspective, Democrats are working to be more expansive about rights. I know that you know conservatives feel differently, especially when it comes to the Second Amendment. But generally speaking, Democrats have the feeling that if they let a Republican in office, then you're going to get benefits cut. You're going to have you know, row overturned. You're going to have real intrusions into your personal life, whereas Republicans, depending on how committed they are to the idea of small government, might not feel like it is as disastrous to their lifestyle or their beliefs if, say, 
you know, oh no, we voted for, didn't vote for a Republican and Democrats in, in, in office. So, oh, I guess I got a healthcare expansion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the way the Democrats and elected officials often frame this. Oh, we can't sit this one out. Every uh, election is the most important election of our lives. But what we're seeing now is that there's a limit to how much that kind of fear mongering can go, especially when you see something like Roe, which has been yeah. used as a bully stick to get people to vote blue no matter who for so many years actually get overturned and to see the democratic response to it be so feckless at some yeah. point people are asking well what is the point of view yeah no solid points as always and we will continue continue this discussion uh soon and we'll have more rising right after this Yesterday evening, a 20-year-old mother was shot in the back of the head by a gunman in Manhattan's Upper East Side while pushing her three-month-old baby in a stroller. Authorities say the suspect is still on the loose. The shooter was said to be wearing all black with a hooded sweatshirt. New York City Mayor Eric Adams tweeted, More guns in our city means more lives lost. It means more babies crying as those who love them lie dead. We cannot allow this epidemic to keep claiming lives. Earlier in the day, another gunman in all black was seen shooting from a scooter in broad daylight in the Bronx. No injuries reported there. However, it is not all gun violence plaguing the city. Here's a video for a wanted homicide of two young men in all uh, suspects wanted for homicide. Two young men in all black punching a 61 year old man in the face, causing him to fall unconscious. And they, then they take his wallet, um, as you can see there which is just uh, horrifying. And there's been you know, a lot of other videos from, uh, I mean, I've seen them from New York, but there's ones from all sorts of places. Philadelphia's crime is, is way, way up, for instance, but videos of you know, shovings and stabbings and beatings and all sorts of, of horrors, which it's always important to check against you know, the crime statistics. My, from, from perusing you know, what the, the, the crime statistics show right now is that Actually, it doesn't look like crime in New York is up that much, violent crime. Uh, but like I just said, it is, it is up in Philadelphia. It's up in Baltimore. It's up in, in, it's up in some cities. Some cities it's up a little bit. Some cities it's way up. And then, but, but anyway, just a horrifying uh, kind of, of thing to happen. Uh, the, the, uh, the woman with the baby stroller sounds maybe possibly premeditated or planned yeah, or like it's going to be it's going to be a suspect who knows her because it, at close range like that that's not a random shooting usually that's someone trying to murder her yeah and abc news is reporting that the killing appears to be targeted but a motive is as yet unknown and they're looking into her life and her relationships to see if there's anything there. And I think you make a good point, Robbie, that, you know, when we're talking about crime, it's important to talk about what's happening on a local level because so often, you know, there are political motives to spinning the narrative one way or the other. And just because it's up in one city doesn't mean that there's a relationship to what's happening in another city. You know, there are people who would politicize this in a different direction and say that this is about perhaps the recent um, Supreme Court case overturning a New York law. But I'm not sure that, you know, open carry laws have any relevance to this kind of what appears to be a targeted shooting. Um, you know, right. and so... For all, we, for all we know, this person has a gun illegally or illicitly, right? That could very well be the case there. They should... They, sure, they, and, and it wasn't necessarily open park. carry. Right, right. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes terrible things happen. 
Yeah. You know, and it's not part of a bigger trend or anything like that. Um, and it's also important to be, to the extent that people want to talk about how to prevent things like this going forward, that we talk about prevention in a ways that is targeted to the kinds of crimes that are actually taking place, right? And I think this is something that I think leftists and people who are particularly focused on the Second Amendment should be of one mind about. You know, there's no point in offering kind of some kind of sleeping, sleeping reform, whether it's ramping up cops or pulling guns off the street, if it isn't targeted to the kinds of crimes that people are intending to dissuade people from, from perpetrating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's horrifying, and we can't stop as a society, you know, all horrifying things from happening. And we should explore, you know, whatever solutions are, are on the table. Um, but I, I, you know, we, we I, I agree with you that right. The left is going to some on the left are going to say, well, this shows how we need to get more guns off the street. But okay, but what is what, that? You need more police to take the guns away, or you need to be lock people up for longer, do all sorts of things. But then are, that those things are not politically appetizing to the left. And then it's you know it's the same in the other direction for um, uh, for you know conservatives saying you know well, we well, I want more law and order, more you know, more locking people away. Well, like, okay, well then, aren't, but you're so you're saying people shouldn't be allowed have allowed to have guns if they've had some conviction for because sometimes you you can't have a gun if you have a conviction for a nonviolent offense and uh, and and that sort of thing and and one conservatives be against that. So anyway, it's a lot of hypocrisy on on these kinds of issues. Yeah. But I do I do take seriously the the perception that the crime is rising and that people feel unsafe. That perception does not always match reality, but it does in some places match re- reality. Some things are getting worse in some places some of the time. It's not everywhere, it's not universal, uh, but it is a, it, I, I think more, there's some evidence of just more antisocial behavior, which isn't the kind of, the, the, that mur- that's a murder with, with the woman with the baby. But the people, you know, beating a man on the street, or you know, shoving people, or getting into fights in public, or or you know, waving guns or shooting guns, kind of in, in, inadvertently shooting people. That kind of stuff does seem to be getting worse. I, I think maybe part of the pandemic, although then some people have arguments that other countries are not ailing or reeling from this, even though they we all suffered the pandemic. So I, right. I don't and know. Part of it is we gotta be open about the fact that it's a coverage issue. I mean, there are. Dozens of things, you know, many crimes, many non-crimes, relevant newsworthy events happening every day. And, you know, we do choose, you know, the media as a whole chooses to cover these kinds of things. And that's not going to have an, a zero effect on the perception of people's public safety. You know, the, the neighborhood where the, the shooting happened, um, where the, the young mother was shot, is actually a, a block away from where my mother used to live when I moved to, when I went to college. She moved up there. And it is, it used to be many, many years ago, obviously I went to college like 20 years ago, uh, but it used to be, it was always a, a, it's a good neighborhood, but it was kind of on the border of where the city was gentrifying and, you know, the Upper East Side was melding in into Harlem. But nowadays it's like, no, all the check cashing places are gone and it's all, you know, blink gyms and a very like Tony neighborhood. So this isn't the idea that like, oh, you know, I think that, that events like this happening in places that are perceived as being very safe does startle people at the same time the fact that this is what appears to be a targeted killing is notable and again is why i'm hesitant to put it into any broader trends it's worth observing that 40 percent of women that are killed are killed by intimate partners 
Again, we don't know what happened here, but that is not exactly the same kind of event that right. is connected to people's generalized fear that something could happen to them. And that would obviously be the educated person's guess for what was going on here, because as you, as you said, domestic uh, violence is so often, or work, and workplace violence actually, is so often a cause of murder in general. Not, and it's not, since it's not connected to ideological motivation, it is actually under-discussed and pre people, oh, people overestimate how much ideological, like political violence there is in the country because mm -hmm. that actually gets covered more. But mm -hmm. so often you know, people kill each other because they get into a fight because mm -hmm. they're mad, because their air conditioning's broken, mm -hmm. because their boss was a jerk, because, you know, th that for those uh, mundane, is, it's mundane in some, in some sense is a is a driver of crime in a way people don't quite understand but i agree with you on the on the you know when when crime and that's kind of disgusting on its own like yeah we don't if as long as crime's happening in crime ridden areas <laughs> that that's that's the way it's supposed to be but when yeah, a lot crime of people don't care gentrifying yeah. areas how horrifying uh you know, like in, in dc we've had uh we've had uh carjackings and some dog nappings in like hmm. in areas of the city that are perfectly gentrified and you're right, that has everybody on edge but okay go go across the river where there's you, you know they sort of cry, horrible crime and uh, people just kind of expect that which i've always found gross um yeah. and we should not just care if it's happening in in you know if it's happening in in our faces absolutely absolutely well team rising joins us next please stick around Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is within single digits of former President Donald Trump in a new national GOP primary survey. A sample of Republican and Republican-leaning respondents to a Yahoo News and YouGov poll were asked, who would you rather see as the Republican nominee for president in 2024? And given a choice between Trump and DeSantis, among registered voters, 45% prefer Trump, while 36% prefer DeSantis. It's a nine-point difference that normally might not seem very close, but for Trump in a reputable Republican primary poll, it's the closest anyone has ever gotten yet. Trump weighed in on a possible 2024 run in a recent interview. Let's take a look at that. Are Melania and Barron on board with a possible run again in two and a half years? Well, they love our country and they hate to see what's happening. So at the right time, I'll be saying what I want to do. But they do. They love our country, both. Barron's a young man. Yep. And Melania is a first lady who is really loved. Yes. I will say yes. that. She, yes. I see the signs. We love our first lady. Mm -hmm. uh, but they love our country, so I think they'll do what has to be done could you if we decide world, to go that way. Could you envision a world, sir, uh, where there is a Trump-DeSantis ticket in 2024? Well, I get along with him. I was very responsible for his success because I endorsed him, and he went up like a rocket ship, just yes. like I endorsed Mary Miller the other day, who supposedly was not going to win, and she won. She won. Just like uh, Darren Bailey is doing great. He just won. Yep. I think he's going to beat Pritzker, one of the worst governors of the country. What an entertaining guy. <laughs> Joe, Joe Rogan is also on the DeSantis 2024 train, saying the governor would work as a good president and that what he's done for Florida has been admirable. Joining us to discuss our Democratic strategist, Colin Ruggiero, and cultural editor at The Federalist, as well as co-host of Rising Fridays, Emily Tashinsky. Thank you both for being here. Good morning. 
Thank you for playing that Good clip. morning. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. fun. <laughs> a part of me, I mean, I'm not saying fun. that I, I missed him, but I have, my, my brain is not used to the pattern of hearing his very particular cadence and way of speaking. And it was like a, just a little jolt to my system. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, Donald Trump. Emily, I, I want to go to you. <laughs> I want to go to you first and ask you, you know, this poll was taken recently. How much do you think, if any, effect the uh, recent revelations in these 1-6 hearings will have on these poll numbers? Is it going to cause Republicans to think, hey, you know, I might not care that much about this, but, you know, here is Ron DeSantis as a relatively clean, clean sta- uh, slate. Let's just move past all of this uh, Trump mishigas. You know, I actually think that's a really good point, and I hadn't thought of it that way because I do generally believe there's exasperation with some people in the Republican base. Um, you know, just just with the, I guess, the drama. Um, you know, that that definitely exists. Now, the separate question of, I don't think the January six hearings is a turning the Republican base, the kind of people that would vote in primaries against Trump. And that wasn't your question, but just to to clarify, I don't think that that's happening. But I do think your question gets at something really interesting, which is that if Ron DeSantis is Trump without the baggage, as he's sort of been considered or pitched by people on the um, on the right and even some people in the media, then does the January 6th hearing, the ongoing sort of drama over Trump um, boost DeSantis? I, I think that is legitimately a very Good question. Hmm. Colin, you know, what do you think? How are Democrats, Democrats and Democratic strategists looking at this? Because I think a lot of Republicans, Republican strategists think DeSantis would be a more appealing candidate to go up against Biden. I think there's been some support for that in the polling that, uh, you know, that, that Trump would have a harder to obviously Trump was defeated by Biden once. Uh, so are, are Democrats looking at this, hoping that DeSantis's star does not rise, or are they so, you know, uh, horrified at the prospect of even having a, a chance of Trump again that they'd rather it be DeSantis anyway? I think Democrats are more focused on um, housekeeping right now, and rightfully so. But here's what I will say about DeSantis. I think people on a national level don't know that much about it. I'm from Florida. I do a ton of work in Florida. DeSantis in a lot of these swing districts, even in the state of Florida, is not above water in his approvals, Mm -hmm. right? I think um, what that national poll of registered voters reflects is what I'm seeing in polls other places. And Emily hit on some of it, right? Maybe not in the Republican primary, but as a general voter sentiment. People are really sick and tired of the drama, and they're sick and tired of the polarization. And I'm seeing in polling questions where people are responding to that more than things that they would normally respond to and typical kind of polling questions that people hold in high regard. They're sick of drama, and they want people to just get some stuff done. Now, what what has not been revealed about Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis has done a lot of the same things that voted that motivated Democratic voters, in addition to alienating some large corporations like Disney. And I I don't think that, you know, I I think he's a better opponent for a Democrat in 2024 than Trump. But nobody's taken Ron DeSantis apart yet. And that will absolutely happen. And he's got a lot of the same problems, culturally speaking. He, He restricted rights to vote, right? He played out this critical race theory in a major way. He's got the don't say gay bill. You know, he took on Disney and and there's a lot of other things that, ha- that you know, have happened on a state level that nobody's aware of nationally that will really damage him when he moves forward. If if voters are looking for somebody who's not so damn polarizing, which I think they are. 
Hmm. But Carla, isn't it, with the Trump stuff, this is what's been so frustrating for me as a leftist. It's like there's so much substantive stuff to criticize about Trump. But the thing that captures the public imagination, and we're seeing this with the 1-6 stuff, is the, oh my gosh, she took the wheel. You know, Jesus, Jesus take the wheel. Like, that, that is the image in everybody's mind. It's the, it's the ketchup drip, drip, dripping down the wall. I saw a, a Drake uh, Instagram making a little rap out of the drip, drip, drip down the wall. Like, that's, that's what people are talking about. So to the extent that Ron DeSantis is just a little bit more straight and narrow, less Carnival Barker kind of entertainment guy presentation, you know, is there is there a chance that he just kind of slips under the radar in, in the way that a lot of Republicans, um, most Republicans until Trump did? And so we have this kind of tee up between two regular guys and it's purely about policy and not so much about vibes. And, and if so, does that make it a harder time for Biden or potentially uh, a challenger? Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily think so. I think we have to kind of firmly accept that in politics today, this is personality driven when you're talking about the presidential race. And, uh, you know, we're in the TMZ of politics. So the Carnival Barker <laughs> thing has its own appeal as a showman. Right. Mm. And Americans kind of want that showman style of person. Uh, you know, people who uh, run under the radar with great policy often don't do that well, even mm. in Democratic primaries. Elizabeth mm. Warren might have had the best policies there are, you know, and most well thought out. And she didn't do that well. And so I, I think there's some of that. But I, I think what we also have to imagine, there's a near term reference here. Right. Like, you know, the Tea Party was hot in 2010. They were hot. And by 2014, everybody hated that stuff and didn't want to be anywhere near it. And I've often said there's nothing kind of sadder than a politician out of power trying to hold on to to that same power and swag. And Donald Trump's is waning by the day. He's under 50 percent in his endorsements and he's playing the endorsement game, which was a dumb thing for him to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. And like the shine is wearing off. And in a general election, this is where the one six stuff is actually going to hurt it because it's pretty egregious, right? And yeah, people are responding to the dumb stuff like throwing plates, but it's it's exemplary of a behavior pattern that people don't want in the league. Hmm. Well, we wanted to comment on uh, some other political electoral developments going on. So on Tuesday's primaries and runoffs saw the downfall of at least three House incumbents and the limits of top Democrats and Republicans to sway the results of key primary races. In Colorado, more moderate Republicans beat candidates who presented themselves as allies with Trump. However, then Trump endorsed candidates were victorious in Illinois. Also, establishment Democrats in New York were victorious over progressive challengers, according to Hill reporting. So, Emily, I think it's still hard to tell. I'm curious for your take, you know, how much you need you need Trump to win. Obviously, Trump's endorsement has been a, a factor in, I think, probably the, the Ohio Republican Senate a primary for sure, the Mandel-Vance race, uh, maybe arguably the Dr. Oz race, and then other places, you know, candidates who have not uh, courted Trump aggressively have have won. So, what you know, what is the, I think we're still trying to figure out how much the Trump factor matters, and it's not quite clear yet, but maybe the fever is breaking a little bit. I don't know. What do you think? It's hard to say because in the past of uh, an endorsement, like uh, and actually still in every other endorsement except for Trump, maybe um, 
it signifies that you are, you know, perhaps a, a purist, right? So like when Colin was talking about the Tea Party races, you know, if, if a candidate got Sarah Palin or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio's endorsement at a certain point in time, it meant uh, this big figurehead sees them as a member of this sort of wing of the ideology. And it was sort of that stamp of approval. It was that wing's stamp of approval. Um, and, you, you know, Bernie Sanders endorses someone. This is a, a true progressive. That's sort of what you can think of. And with Trump, that's just not the case. Because if you look at Dr. Oz, um, he was endorsing Dr. Oz explicitly as somebody who would be able to win the general election. I think that was a, a miscalculation, uh, but that was the purpose behind his endorsement of Dr. Mm -hmm. Oz. And so what happens is the Trump endorsement because, becomes one of many, many variables in these local races, in these state-based races, where all kinds of different things are figuring into and factoring into voters' decisions. And so it's less of an ideological stamp um, because he's uh, sort of intentionally made it something where he's he's trying to mint winners um, and Trump allies as opposed to you know making some sort of statement about people's uh, people's platforms and ideology so I think it just turns out to be hyper local in a lot of these cases and it influences it certainly in certainly in Ohio probably in Arizona definitely in Pennsylvania um, but other times I think local factors will take precedent um, and you know voters sort of make up their minds based on all kinds of different things yeah, and to the point I think you were making earlier, Colin, you know, in terms of the substance, a lot of people do like Ron DeSantis for doing the same things that, you know, uh, Donald Trump was known to do. And so the idea of there being kind of one true Scotsman on the right, I mean, there's a couple of Scotsmen that are pretty true. <laughs> Whereas on the left, you know, outside of Bernie, you know, <laughs> mentioned Elizabeth Warren earlier, you know, even within the left, there's a lot of fractions over the Bernie camp versus the mm -hmm. Warren camp that came out of the primary, Elizabeth Warren making those accusations about Bernie Sanders not believing a woman could be president at the in the final stretch there. And of course, you know, mm -hmm. even before that, really struggled to get uh, voters of color to vote for her and famously did pretty poorly in her home state coming in third place. So there are still tensions over that in a way that makes, I think, Bernie's endorsement um, ring a lot more faithfully than perhaps on the right, where there are a lot of there are a lot of options. You got your Marjorie Taylor Greens. There's a there's a lot to choose from over there. So I appreciate both of you joining <laughs> us today. Thanks. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. We'll have more rising for you after this. Earlier this month, a bipartisan bill was introduced in Congress that would ban former members of Congress from lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. New Quincy Institute research finds that this congressional action is long overdue as the revolving door from Congress to lobbying on behalf of foreign interests has, quote, been spinning feverishly. Since 2000, nearly 100 former lawmakers have become lobbyists for countries like Saudi Arabia and China in Washington. Joining us now to discuss is research fellow at the Quincy Institute, Ben Freeman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for being with us. Please tell us more uh, about this problem and how pervasive it is. We went back and looked at all the data since 2000. What we found was that former members of Congress, at least 90 of them, have gone on to work uh, on behalf of foreign powers and registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. 
and, and not just that, they typically work for authoritarian regimes, countries like China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, who may have very different interests than the U.S. So, so is this, uh, sorry, the, the bill that's being introduced, would this prevent lawmakers from not only lobbying for countries like China and Saudi Arabia, but what about countries like Israel or uh, the UK, for example? The bill as introduced would prohibit former lawmakers from working for any foreign government, um, whether it was a U.S. ally, whether it was a democracy or or an autocracy, um, China, Russia, anybody. The the bill doesn't pick winners uh, and losers. So it sounds nefarious, but can you give us some examples of the kinds of things that they would be lobbying for or have lobbied for that are uh, present a conflict of interest with Americans? Really, you name it, any major foreign policy issue uh, that we've had in the last 20 years, there's been a a former lawmaker lobbying uh, on behalf of a foreign power related to it. Uh, This includes everything from the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, for example, uh, arms sales to Yemen, uh, to Chinese surveillance technology, to uh, Russian oligarchs trying to get off a sanctions list. Pretty much any issue that comes up in U.S. foreign policy, chances are there's a former member of, of Congress lobbying for it. And they pursue these uh, these foreign governments, these uh, foreign interests. They pursue our, you know, our the revolving door, the, the congressman who's just left, right, because those people, you know, they still know their colleagues who are in Congress. They can call them up. They can, you know, get dinner and drinks, nice steak, talk to them about, hey, yeah, could you actually, you know, ease off this bill? And, oh, what about this? Have you seen this? And like, yeah, you know, maybe do something of that nature. It's this kind of access and influence that the American people, you know, don't even know the vast extent taking place. Uh, have, I, have I, you know, summarized the, the problem correctly? You, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, what former members of Congress can offer foreign powers is is access and influence. They have all of their former colleagues' uh, cell phone numbers, for example. Uh, they can just shoot them a text when they want to lobby them. You know, they don't have to go through a long, complicated process. And they know how to get things done, but they also know how to m- make sure things don't happen, which more often than not with foreign powers, they're looking to, to stop a key piece of legislation from happening. They're looking to get somebody off of a sanctions list. And former members of Congress know how to do all of this, and they know the exact people to contact to get it done. So if you're a foreign government, you know, if I were a foreign government, I would say then and the United States being the big, bad, powerful country around the world or big, good, powerful country around the world, however you want to look at us at times with foreign policy. Um, what I mean, I can understand. So I understand the problem here and I understand that it's it on the surface seems like a really bad idea to allow former members of Congress to go and become lobbyists for foreign governments. But at the same time, I feel like foreign governments would want to have a say in some of the stuff that goes on in American politics because of the impact that it has around the world. So what other avenues, if this were no longer allowed, what other avenues would foreign countries have to lobby the United States, for example, from from keep from crushing sanctions in places like Venezuela or Iran, you know, these countries that are bombings and wars and proxy wars and what would they be able to do? 
Yeah, even if this bill is passed, uh, these foreign governments, all the types of folks you mentioned, would still have access to the thousands of other lobbyists uh, that are currently registered and and roaming the streets of Washington already. They just wouldn't have uh, the ability to hire uh, former members of Congress or other high-ranking government officials, which recently in the news, um, former retired General John Allen, uh, former president of the Brookings Institution, too, uh, he, he was allegedly implicated uh, in, in doing some illegal lobbying work for Qatar. So this legis- legislation would prohibit folks like John Allen and former members of Congress from, from lobbying on behalf of these foreign governments, but it wouldn't prohibit anybody else. So there still would be plenty of opportunities for folks looking for lobbyists to work for them. And of course, all of these foreign governments have their regular diplomatic corps. They have their ambassadors. They have all those formal channels of influence still available to them as well. Yeah, Not a- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I am a little concerned about how um, this is actually implemented, given that I, I presume that there are kind of informal channels at play. And I also wondered if you might speak to the likelihood of this passing. You say it's bipartisan. Uh, are there people who have come out in open opposition to this? And what are their stated reasons? I, I'm not aware of anybody who's come out um, against this bill or, or even previous bills to to combat this problem. I mean, I think I, I, I do think it's hard to find somebody who's uh, who's pro foreign influence in Congress. Uh, you, you know, well, it's people very, came out in defense of a Congress members being able to trade on the stock market. So you never know. <laughs> right. That's fair. That, that's very fair, I suppose. But no, I'm not aware of anybody coming out um, uh, against this bill. Um, you know, I, I am aware of some of the concerns with it. Um, but but I think by and large, uh, this is an important issue because in, in addition to everything we've already mentioned, members of Congress, they, they also have access to classified information, sometimes mm-hmm. highly classified information, mm-hmm. troop movements, intelligence operations, that sort of things. And so if a foreign power can then just hire that person immediately, there's always a risk of that in information getting into the wrong hands. So so I think in addition to everything we've already discussed, there's a real national security risk at play here too. What what is the current state of the law because my understanding and, and this, so this could be wrong, uh, please let us know is that there's some restriction on how quickly you can engage in lobbying after you leave uh, government or is that only for government uh, employees rather than elected officials? Yeah, the, the, there is a one-year cooling off period, and what we see often happen is that that's the guideline. But in that interim, during that cooling off period, we see members of Congress go to work for some of these lobbying firms who are representing some of these foreign powers, but they don't work on that specific contract. They might be, you know, a policy director or that sort of thing, a consultant there. Mm-hmm. So they don't directly engage in lobbying. Um, they just happen right. to have this fantastic Rolodex. They're just which consultants. To yeah, the right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of radical on this. I think members of Congress should be banned from Washington, D.C. entirely. <laughs> I mean, as soon as they're done serving, they should have to go back home. You know, it should be part of the deal. Like, you come, you serve, and when you're finished, and there should be a term limit on it, when you're finished, you got to go back home. You have to go back to private life private, and, and become a private we citizen. We should keep them there home. even while they're in office. <laughs> no, then because you want them to you no, know, because there's there, there's actually an issue with that. And I think Newt Gingrich did something similar where he kind of changed the dynamics of, and there's now people just don't get along and they're not friendly. I mean, you want people to be friendly with each other, but at the same time, you want them to go back home, go back to where you came from, go back to be, you know, go back to where you came from, uh, go back to to private life, so that because it's so incestuous. They're not sending you know? their best. <laughs> Well, and, you know, someone like myself, I'm not there in D.C. I'm totally outside the beltway out out here in sunny California. And 
you know, it, it's just it's so problematic that these people, they go and they serve. They're, they're supposed to be working for us. They somehow end up rich as all heck, you know, by working around in these lobbying gr- groups and using their influence. And that just should the whole thing should be banned in some way. Just you have to go back to private life. You have to go back to California or wherever, Nancy. Well, maybe, no, this, maybe this is a step in the right direction. We'll see. We appreciate you joining Hopefully. us and your reporting, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. And we will have more rising for you after this. Breaking news this morning, President Biden said he supports suspending the filibuster if necessary to codify Roe v. Wade into law. Here's the president speaking to reporters in Spain. I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law. And the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. It should be we provide an exception for this, the except the require an exception to the filibuster for this action to deal with the Supreme Court decision. Hang on, I got one more here. Kelly O'Donnell, NBC. Thank you, Mr. President. Well, you just made some news saying you would support changing the filibuster rules to codify abortion rights broadly across the country. Right to privacy is not just abortion rights, but yes, abortion rights. I believe we have to codify. The president's announcement comes as state and private entities across the country phase in abortion bans. So Arizona's attorney general has actually gone against what the governor, Doug Ducey, ruled. Uh, and he said that a 1901 pre-statehood law almost completely outlawing abortion is indeed enforceable. That's what the attorney general said. Uh, the governor believed that the brand new March 2022 law that bans it at 15 weeks would be the one that takes effect. The AP reports the old law says anyone convicted of aiding a pregnant woman obtaining an abortion at any stage of pregnancy faces up to five years in prison with the only exception being if the life of the woman is in jeopardy. Hmm. Meanwhile, in Kansas City, a major hospital and healthcare system will no longer provide Plan B to its patients. This means that rape victims who receive care at any point uh, at any of St. Luke's 16 health centers in Missouri will no longer have the option to take a morning after pill to help prevent pregnancy. A reminder for everyone who skipped sex education or perhaps had it banned at their school is that the morning after pill does not undo a president, uh, pregnancy. It is not an abortion pill. The egg has not implanted in the uterus at that time. It might not even be fertilized at that time. It simply prevents an egg from implanting in the uterine wall. So now we are making contraceptives illegal, not actually uh, targeting abortion anymore. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. Uh, the Republican overreach, the conservative overreach is, uh, is happening as we speak. I mean, I've said many times on the show, uh, I think states should not criminalize that. Now, whether whether the Constitution prohibits states from doing it is, I think, a, diff- a different conversation when we've had a lot this week. But just on the, you know, on the merits of it, no, it is crazy to me to restrict uh, rights to contraception. I think contraception should be more widely available um, over the counter, uh, you know, without any kind of 
prescription necessary from a doctor, uh, which, which actually is in keeping with my general, the FDA is bad and should be destroyed stance and, and gets in the way of people and the medicine and products and, and, and things that they need that people understand their health better and uh, we don't need the government getting in the way of that. So this goes in exactly the opposite direction. And I guess I do wonder if, you know, I, I, think, I think getting rid of Roe from the conservative standpoint is a, is a big policy win, is something they've been promising the base they were going to do for forever. And they did do, they, they kind of had to do it. That's, it's what the base wanted. I don't know that- is it Robbie? Because again, yes. Mississippi, a deep red state, wanted a 15-week abortion ban. That's what the case was about. It was not about um, overturning Roe. 66% of Americans do want, not want Roe to be overturned. Republicans are now just figuring out that overturning Roe, like that Roe v. Wade, didn't allow limitless abortions for all time. It was simply a uh, absolute protection to the right to choose within the first viability week, uh, during the first weeks where there was no viability outside of the body. And that, as it turns out, is the position the majority of Americans agree with. I mean, sure, but what I'm, I'm not talking about the, the merits of it. What, like you talk about this all the time. Why don't Democrats deliver for their base? Why don't Democrats deliver for the people voting for them? Republicans just showed them what that looks like. This is what, what, the, what social conservatives, what active conservatives, the Republican active base, what they put people like Trump in power to do is what they just did. Now, I don't, you're right in, in that I think a lot of people in the Republican sphere are on board with perhaps a 15-week ban or something like that, are not looking for a total, only the, the most hardcore of hardcore anti-abortion activists want a total ban. And then a, a very, I think an even smaller percentage want like restrictions on contraception and that sort of thing. So it, it, it's kind of a, I think it's a quit while you're ahead situation. Not that Republicans have shown much sort of self-restraint in in this regard. So I, yeah, I expect you're going to see some kind of attempts to do things that are clearly, uh, clearly illegal or unconstitutional, like restricting information about contraception or restricting ability to cross state lines, all that stuff, which is clearly not something they can do. They're going to try to do it. And then that's going to be, you know, something Democrats can point to as, well, this is why Republicans are too extreme and you should vote for us. And maybe there will eventually be some counterbalancing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of the viral tweet from last week where was it was it uh, uh, Doug Ducey's son who a woman tweeted alleged that after they had um, been intimate with each other, he asked her to take the morning after pill. I mean, this is going to implicate a lot of people, um, including a lot of conservative lives. And we'll, well see but, what happens. But Ducey when they... was not saying Ducey was not saying the governor was not saying right. that he supports the 15 week ban. Right. Right. And he doesn't a ban on contraception. Right. And yet here we go. He's a member of a party that is pushing for these kinds of things. And this is what we've been talking about all week. Is there going to be accountability provided by people from within their own party about the ways that it's going on this frolic and detour? And to this point, I think what um, uh, Joe Biden said in his statement was really interesting because he corrected the reporter saying, I'm actually going to try to codify not just Roe, but this privacy right, which would expand protections to things like interracial marriage, um, uh, gay marriage, the right to contraception, um, the right to 
any kind of sex practice that you want, which have all been on the chopping block as states try to enforce uh, kind of cultural tyranny on the people that live inside. And so earlier, Robbie, you said, you know, the, the question isn't whether, you know, is whether the Constitution protects these rights. No, I think the question should be if we, if we is, if we as a society want to have protection at the federal level against the states intervening into our private lives, our family planning, the intimate relationships between husband and wife, husband, husband, wife and wife, the intimate relationships between a person and their doctor, the way that Republicans who say they want to have independence and keep the government out of their business, the way that Republicans have been really spearheading in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think government should not infringe on people's rights to purchase contraception or or what kind of sex they're having or who they marry or you know all that kind of stuff i mean we're now we're getting down to kind of basic sort of libertarian versus conservative view but yes that would be my view that it, it, because it's not that the government has to protect those rights the government they has obviously to do not, no, but, but what i'm saying is <laughs> they, they obviously but, do because these states are on a tyrannical let me, tear let me, can you let me finish can you sure. let me finish they don't need to protect it uh the, the first thing they need to do is just not take those rights away. They don't need to give you anything. They just need to not infringe the right in the but first But who's place. to stop them, Robbie? Who's to stop the states with this unlimited power that's been granted by the Supreme Court now from doing whatever they want in your bedroom? That's the what's at stake right now. should not infringe on your, the, the state government should not infringe on those rights. Should have, would have, could have. I would vote against the have, could have. on those rights. I would eagerly, I would actively call on States not to do those infringements. Yeah, well, you can, you can eagerly call them all day, just like Democrats write nicely worded letters and petitions to try to get Joe Biden to do a darn thing. It doesn't work. The reason we have a constitution and some rights that we say are constitutionally protected is because we've decided as a community that some things are sacred and the state should not be coming after them. Until last Friday, it was a settled law in this country, and we all agreed it as a community that the state should not have interference in your bedroom, in your private lives. And that was a constitutionally protected right. And I just want to be really clear to what's happened to all of the listeners right now. What has happened, what the Supreme Court has done is taken away your protection to have uh, protection from your state, from coming literally into your bedroom and dictating the the, 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 contra the social contracts you want to draw up between you and your doctor, you and your partner, what kind of things that you do in your bedroom, who you marry, who you love. The, there, we had constitutional protection from that and settled law, and we don't have that anymore. And there's no other way to read the situation. I'm sorry. But we should have had legislative protection well, we all along, and we should get it now. We can't we rely, well, well, on, support can't rely this. on courts to adjudicate well, all this. Robbie, do you What's think that? that Republicans will support a, a privacy law, uh, an act that would codify not just Roe, as Joe Biden has said, but a broader right to privacy that we just lost? No, not throwing it. Obviously, <laughs> throwing in abortion. No, if you left abortion out. I don't know. You'd get some you might get some Republican su support, at least for protection for gay marriage or contraception. I, you might get at least a few votes or I, I don't maybe maybe you don't because the reality of the Senate is everyone just does what. I don't know, the Trump tells them to do or whoever the leader of the Republican Party is. But in a sort of sane environment, you would have some some senators, at least probably uh, going that way. I don't you know, I don't know what the reality is now. But uh, but maybe it's I don't, it's incumbent on people to advocate more broadly for these rights. I, I guess we're going to have to have some of these battles again. Uh, but, you know, just relying on it in the Supreme Court was never a great strategy. It needs to be it, it needs to be. The, the government needs to be stopped from taking these rights away.
that like that's just the not states, by the, the states court, need but to by be, the will of the people. Yeah, the states need to be stopped from taking these rights away. This is what states' rights has wrought. So good luck to everybody out there, and uh, we'll have more rising for you after this. Americans have been plagued by long delays and flight cancellations for months. And now Vermont's very own Senator Bernie Sanders is calling on Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to fine airlines for last minute flight cancellations. Bernie's proposal asks Mayor Pete to fully refund passengers who wait over an hour for their flight and impose fines on airlines for flights delayed over two hours. In addition, airlines would be fined $55,000 per passenger if they cancel flights they knew in advance could not be fully staffed. And Bernie's not alone with his frustration. Senate candidate John Fetterman also calling on the administration to fine airlines $27,500 per passenger for each understaffed flight cancellation. Meanwhile, Buttigieg uh, told NBC about the staffing shortages ahead of the July 4th holiday. Let's watch that. The airlines got a lot of money, over $50 billion. A lot of that was, the, the idea was that you wouldn't have to lay off people, that you could keep people employed. So the, the point of this taxpayer funding was to keep people in their jobs. And one of the best things about uh, the rescue plan, for example, was the news that uh, airline employees were told to tear up their furlough notices when it came through. But we also saw that a lot of people, including pilots, were nudged into early retirement by the airlines. That certainly is something that reduced the labor force that right now we're really counting on. You say there's no staffing issue with air traffic control. Are there other issues, though, within your purview that are slowing the system down? Let me be clear. We have had our challenges with air traffic control, but they do not explain the majority of the cancellations and the delays that we've seen out there. This is so frustrating. This is exactly why you don't do industry-specific bailouts. They will always break your heart. How does he, he sounds, Pete is, well, how could he not know? Like, they sound confused and surprised that we gave an industry all this money and they didn't do exactly what we wanted with it. They never do. And it's so, and I, I also don't, the idea of trying to find them, why don't we just do, why doesn't the government do something that is actually under their purview, which is the freaking TSA, they can get rid of it that is something they created that they could get rid of that would make make flying much more easier, more convenient, less expensive, less time wasting. There'd be fewer lines. People could get to their gate at you know right uh, in in a reasonable time be- before their flight instead of trying to guess how much time getting through security is going to take you at the at the airport. Security measures that do not meaningfully contribute to safety whatsoever has been ha- found a thousand times over. I, I would love to have. Uh, every you know senator get on board with a abolish the TSA bill tomorrow. I, I would I'll, I'll vote forever for whoever uh, proposes it first. All right, Robbie, I'm, I'm with you on the TSA stuff, but this is these are issues. The 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 policy that Bernie is proposing here and John Fetterman is proposing here is about a very specific issue that's causing delays, not delays of people getting into their gate, but delays across the board, flights not taking off, yeah. flights getting canceled because of these staffing issues. And I would agree with you with respect to the bailout. I don't think that we should be continuing to give money to corporations when we cannot enforce a basic policy like don't lay people off. You know, we said in the in the as a condition of the bailout money that you can't 
lay people off that the whole point of this bailout was to keep the economy going, keep flights going throughout the pandemic. But the reality is that they found a, a workaround because that's what corporatists do. That's what people like McKinsey Peach know all about, given that that's his background. They find work uh, workarounds. And so they got all the money. And then they, they once they secured the bag, as it were, they let go of all of these employees. And now they're still trying to collect the same amount of fees from flyers and have the same amount of flights that they had before with lower staff. And they have fly, uh, pilots and, and crew burning the candle at both ends, which frankly doesn't sound very safe to me on top of everything else. These are people that we trust with our lives. Um, and that all of this is because the airlines are trying to eke out more and more profit. So what do you think about the policy that's on the table right now? Actually making it so that instead of putting the cost onto the consumer and say, saying, oh, we tried to book all these flights, I guess we didn't have pilots, now you're SOL and just sitting in the airport or you're missing your daughter's wedding or whatever, and then and instead putting the onus on airplane, the airlines industries, who have the ability to know in advance what their staffing needs are and whether or not a plane is going to take off the ground, but decline to let passengers know because they know that they can get us to the airport, which costs $80 to get there in a taxi or hours to get there on the train if you're in a city like New York. And those once we get once we get there, we're captive hostages, and we'll just go they, wherever they tell us to go. Finding fine, uh, fining the airline, they're going to pass that cost along to consumers as well. Why wouldn't they just pass that cost on too? The airline t ticket prices are are high enough as it is. I I, I mean that's, more. That's why the fines are calculated to be so high. I think that's exactly yeah. why the costs are calculated to be so high. If it's that kind of a damaging blow, there's no way. I mean, no, the, the airline would go out of business. There's no, there's no yeah. um, passenger who can pay fifty-five thousand dollars for a seat. Even you know, millionaires and billionaires aren't wanting to pay fifty-five thousand well, no, dollars no, no, for a seat. No, they they no, could no, buy no, their no, own they, plane. They, they, Right. They, well, well, they, they would split it up. Split right? that up among the yeah, yeah. They don't but have to the, literally well, no, no, make no, a the, consumer pay fifty-five thousand dollars. They just but it would raise still be the too cost much. of every, yeah, the, the, right, yeah. That's exactly, some people are saying these fees are too high. No, I, I, my understanding is that the fees are calculated to be that high exactly so it's not just a marginal difference. They can pass that on the consumer. It's all or nothing. Yeah. Either they fly the planes right and calculate the staffing issues right and hire the people they need to staff, and, and they will take a hit on their profit margins for doing that, or they go ahead they and go out of business. They won't take a hit on their profit margins because they'll just increase the cost of every flight by like a dollar or something and then recoup that cost. So is, they're basically doing they're doing what they've done for for a long time. And now they're just doing it kind of amplified. But, you know, there's a long history of airlines overbooking flights. They book too many seats. They know they don't have that many seats on an airline on a on a on a plane. And yet they still do it because they figure, well, we can delay some passengers or maybe some don't show up or whatever that might be. And now what we're seeing is this sort of methodology on steroids, right? So what they're doing is these airlines know they don't have the staff for these flights. They're but they're selling yes. you the flight anyway. Yes. Just like they sell you the seat and they sold they sold all three of us the same seat, right? And they they're well, you know, we'll work it out. Or, and now they're doing that basically that same thing, but they're doing it on steroids. They're selling an entire flight to people, knowing that flight is never gonna go off the ground. And that's the issue. That definitely has to be stopped. Even them overbooking flights needs to be, I mean, there could be some sort of calculus on that, but they do it to an, an excess as it is. And now they're doing this. Something does have to stop them from just selling, you know, ghost flights. These right. don't exist. That right. shouldn't be allowed. You should have to sell a flight you know actually exists and will get off the ground. Right. It's and if fraud. you're not, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's like basic business, right? Yeah, they're 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 defrauding passengers repeatedly and with knowledge. Right. And we used to have a consumer protection movement in this country and an understanding that 
our, our time mattered, our dollars mattered, and that even if a price of something was high, that we got something uh, of value in exchange. Nobody right. feels like that's the case when they take a flight anymore. And the idea that there are these corporatists who are defending the airline industry, making hand over fist profit, at the same time that we, the taxpayer, bail them out. There's a lot of conversation about how it'll be passed on to the consumer. What about the fact that the consumer has already paid to keep these businesses, businesses yeah. afloat? CEOs yeah. are still profiting hand over fist. The idea, you know, we, if you want to talk about passing costs off to consumers, then you need to get on board with some of these corporate price gouging acts that progressives are also trying to pass that will prevent that kind of behavior. But having a laissez-faire attitude saying, well, everything's going to trickle down to the consumer no matter what, so we're just going to line up and continue to get screwed until time immemorial, doesn't seem to me to be good policy or good politics. Yeah, we got to regulate it somehow. I mean, come on, Robbie, we got to be able to regulate this. You can't sell flights that don't exist. You can't sell product that doesn't exist to people and just get away with it. There's got to be I mean, a control on that. Well, all, that's already so if, if they're committing fraud, uh, if, if it meets the definition of fraud, then, yeah, they should be. We don't need new laws to prosecute them for that. Right. Fraud's already illegal. Um, well, I don't know. Oh, what please. is Yeah, what is they, the They do? probably, they, 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 do you know who writes the definitions of these kinds of um, corporate liability statutes? It's the corporations. <laughs> you're, you're never, if, if, any, if we learned anything from this week of Supreme Court cases, it's that you should not be relying on the court system to impart justice here. You just, you just can't. The reality well, of the matter. So we're, supposed to, we're supposed to rely on their lobbyist bought uh, political operatives. That, I mean, it's. Well, I don't know about you, I agree Robbie, with you, but I don't vote for candidates. I personally do not vote for candidates that don't take corporate money. And I think that everyone on every part of the political spectrum should be doing yeah. the same. And we have a lot better brand of politics in this country. On both sides, yeah. And, that's, and that right. trend is happening a bit on the Republican side of the aisle as well. There are some that have sworn off corporate money and, you know, would love to see more of that. Would love to see all of them do it. But I'm and sure then they would find a workaround. I would, I would love to vote. I would love to vote in political figures who don't vote to, to give, to take my tax dollars and just give them to the industry as a bailout. Yeah, absolutely. I, I well, mean, and there's that too. I agree. I don't yeah. think we should be bailing out companies well, either. Well, for the record, both uh, Fetterman and Bernie Sanders are two of those unbought candidates. It's why so many people find them to be so popular. And I think it's not an accident that it's why it's those two that are pushing this kind of agenda forward yeah. right now. We'll see what the people have to say. We'll have Free a win now, for you. TSA. Free win. <laughs> Get rid of him. <laughs> I'm also on board with his TSA plan. All right, Robbie, you, you win that one too. We'll have a rising for you <laughs> right after this. So Kim, what's on your radar today? Well, Fauci has COVID again. He's experiencing a rebound case after taking Pfizer's treatment drug Paxlovid. Here he is talking about it. Thank you so much. I remember the last time that we interviewed you, you told us that you were staying away from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You said that given your age, you felt it was potentially risky. And unfortunately, just weeks later, you ended up getting COVID yourself. Are you doing any better now? Uh, well, yes, I am. But I've had a, um, an interesting course that I think is becoming uh, more and more typical the more clinical experience we get. Um, I turned positive uh, about two weeks ago with very minimal symptoms. When they increased, I, given my age, I went on Paxlovid for five days and I felt really quite well, just a bit of rhinorrhea and fatigue. And after I finished the five days of Paxlovid, 
I reverted to negative on an antigen test for three days in a row. Uh, and then on the fourth day, just to be absolutely certain, I tested myself again and I reverted back to positive by the antigen test. So it was sort of what people are referring to as a Paxlovid rebound. And then over the next day or so, I started to feel really poorly, much worse than in the first go around. So I went back on Paxlovid and right now I am on my fourth day of a five-day course of my second course of Paxlovid. And fortunately, I feel reasonably good. I mean, I'm not completely without symptoms, but I certainly don't feel acutely ill. Okay, so he caught COVID, had minor symptoms, then his symptoms started to get worse, so he started around a Paxlovid. He then felt better and tested negative for a few days, and then suddenly he tested positive. And this is where it gets interesting, because if you remember, we talked about Paxlovid's rebound COVID problem about six weeks ago after late night host Stephen Colbert also came down with a rebound case. And at the time, Pfizer and experts were claiming it was very rare. And in Stephen Colbert's case, the rebound wasn't as bad as the initial round of COVID. So there were questions about whether or not a rebound case was even truly COVID or whether or not people were contagious. At least that's what they were claiming. But people online having real world experiences were saying otherwise. People were claiming it was way more common than just rare and that the second wave of the virus was often worse. But those stories were dismissed. Now we have Fauci telling the same story. And I'll give him props for being transparent about his symptoms and telling us the truth. But those props are short-lived because here comes Fauci with another one of his noble lies. According to the New York Times, Fauci says he believes Paxlovid kept him out of the hospital even though he tested positive again. The article reads, Fauci sought on Wednesday to discourage doubts about the antiviral drug Paxlovid after disclosing that he had suffered what appeared to be a, round, a rebound of COVID-19 after taking a five-day course of the pills. Paxlovid did what it was supposed to do, Dr. Fauci 81 said in an interview, saying that he believed that the treatment made by Pfizer kept him out of the hospital when he first tested positive for the virus on June 15th. He added that he thought the drug also reduced the severity of his initial symptoms. So here's Fauci telling us there's no issue with Pfizer's treatment drug because he wants to discourage doubts. Just tell us the truth. Don't try to tell us stories to keep our hopes up in Pfizer's pocketbook lined. The fact is, he had a rebound case that was worse than his initial bout of symptoms. Studies show rebound cases of COVID are, in fact, very, very rare in people who don't take this treatment drug. An initial recent study surrounding the drug shows rebound cases are not rare. In fact, in one study of a handful of people, several of the rebound cases were within one family group. And how could he say it was Paxlovid that kept him out of the hospital? He's taken four doses of the COVID vaccine. He's been telling us it's the vaccine that will keep us safe and out of the hospital. So which is it? How are people supposed to continue trusting anything Fauci says when it was two doses, then three, then four, then add a round of Paxlovid, then add a second round and still end up sick? Granted, he's not dead and he's 81, so I guess there's that. Fact is, they speak with authority about knowing what these drugs and vaccines do and they and, and don't do, and then they persuade the population and even turn us against one another. And in reality, it's all still very much unknown. Take a look at Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a medical expert who appears regularly on MSNBC. We've had him here on Rising. He also experienced one of the supposed very rare cases of Paxlovid rebound. Here's his tweet thread about the experience. Well, thought COVID was over, finished five days of Paxlovid, felt well, 
two negative antigen tests five days later up this AM, lots of rhinorrhea, sore throat, antigen tests screaming positive. So either this post-Paxlovid relapse is real, something unique to BA.2.12, although can't confirm, or something. Well, we'll eventually figure this out, but still a puzzle. I don't feel that terrible. It's like a bad cold, still doing Zooms, interviews, writing. Will a second course of Paxlovid help? Not much of a roadmap until I figure this out. Watching Respect, Aretha Franklin movie. Great music. Thank goodness for our COVID vaccinations. I can only imagine if we didn't have them. Well, first of all, he's admitting here that there are many unknowns and they're working to solve a puzzle. It isn't settled science. Secondly, if the vaccines work, why even take Paxlovid? Lastly, do we trust and follow data and science? Because the fact is, the clinical trials that allowed Paxlovid authorization for use were done on unvaccinated high-risk patients, not four-time jabbed Stephen Colbert, Anthony Fauci, or Peter Hotez. These men are taking the drug off-label without any clinical data to back up its use for them, and yet Fauci doesn't want to dissuade people from using it. It may very well be true that the rebound cases do not happen in the unvaccinated who take Paxlovid, the group it was designed for and tested on, but many people are taking it who've been vaccinated over and over. Do they trust the vaccines or not? Do they follow science and the data or not? Because at this point, the answer to both of these questions seems to be no. The real response is, these guys are throwing the kitchen sink at COVID, and they have no idea which thing that did that, that saved them, if any of them at all. They lambasted and ridiculed others who were willing to try anything and everything, and apparently it's only okay to experiment with off-label drugs when it's promoted by big science and big pharma. So I'm curious on, you know, your take on this, especially Robbie. You know, look, Paxlovid was authorized. I get it. You know, you're always saying get rid of the FDA. We don't need any regulation or anybody looking at it. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, we do have to know whether or not something actually works. And Paxlovid was rushed through. Um, the, and really, the clinical trial data is very, very good for unvaccinated people. The people they tested it on, they only tested it on unvaccinated. They never tested it on a single vaccinated person in the clinical trials. And it had a 90 percent uh, efficacy of keeping them out of the hospital. So it was as good as basically being vaccinated. If you didn't get the vaccine, you couldn't take the vaccine. You could take Paxlovid and, and stay out of the hospital. These guys are four times jabbed, all, all three of these men who are having a rebound case after taking Paxlovid. I mean, don't you think we need more, you know, the FDA to do their job and actually look at this and say, that is an off-label use. We don't, you know, you're not authorized to use it for that. I, I, I mean, or do you just well, say I no? Wouldn't, just... I, I wouldn't stop them from using it, but we need to update the recommendations, certainly. I mean, with Fauci himself, Fauci himself, suffering what is obviously what he admits he openly openly admits and actually i was glad to see him really walk every i mean obviously we have our we have our criticisms of Fauci, but to actually walk people through exactly what he experienced and to call it what it is which is this paxlovid rebound so given that i would like to see the public health advisors maybe change what their recommendations are and maybe say you know what if you're vaccinated and boosted and you contract COVID as you inevitably will because the, that's you know no guarantee that you won't get it. Um, we do not necessarily recommend that if you're in a high risk group, you take Paxlovid because we are seeing the rebounds and we've only tested it, like you said, Kim, uh, seeing the remarkable success with with unvaccinated. So I would think I would think the recommendations should change. I wouldn't I wouldn't deauthorize it, but I would I would certainly 
what we're, how we're talking about it should be different if even Fauci himself experienced this exact thing. Yeah, it would yeah. be nice if some of these conversations, I mean, the, the world of people who are frustrated with Fauci and are frustrated with the recommendations that have come down the pike and some of the inconsistencies in the back and forth is so broad and is so um, politically diverse that I think part of the issue is that I never see Fauci being questioned by anybody from that world and having conversations with people who can really get him to respond to some of the concerns that are so often vetted in conversations like these, on shows like these, that do uh, have a, a broader kind of ideological net. And again, I'm, I'm constantly bringing this up because I'm very concerned with this kind of crisis of confidence um, and how to rectify it without these kind of draconian uh, truth ministries and stuff that seem to be the Biden administration's response. But I also think ignoring it and like people going further and further into their silos and becoming more distrustful of each other isn't useful either, especially when there is some kind of scientific something at the root of this. And if the answer is, well, we hadn't quite figured it out yet. Oh, okay, we, okay, we rushed this out or this recommendation out because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we don't want to keep potentially useful medications from people. Fine, just say that, but you have to be nimble and dexterous about changing recommendations when the evidence bears something out different and trust that the, the public, because you've been in communication with them, honest, open communication with them, doesn't see your revised opinion as something to cause them to lose faith. Rather, they see the fact that you're willing to say, hey, I was wrong, here's a new recommendation as something that makes them invest faith in you as a person and as an institution. I yeah, would I like think to where see they Fauci went wrong. ask that question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, where they went wrong is in the beginning, they should have just said, we don't know, but this is yeah. better than nothing, yeah. right? I mean, that's what they should have said. We don't know, but it's better than nothing. And instead they said, no, this is it. And you are anti-science if you don't believe in us. You know, if you don't take your two jabs, that is going to end the pandemic. That is going to do it. And you're, and you're anti-science for not doing it. And then they said, okay, now you need a third. And then they still wouldn't come back and apologize to the people that they demonized and and called anti-science anti-vaxxers and then you needed a fourth jab and now these guys are taking two rounds not one but two rounds of paxlovid on top of being four times jabbed at some point you've got to say this is getting to a level of insanity and there's a i i think a big apology honestly that needs to uh, there needs to be a reckoning for one the reason why we have to bring this up and the importance of it is there will be another pandemic at some point hopefully not in our lifetime but likely because of the way things are going and when it does happen again, we need to learn from this and not say, hey, this is what worked. You know, we, we rushed out a vaccine that worked the first time. So we're going to do it again. That's not true. And we need to own that. And we need to say we, we need to do this differently next time. And really, the people that lost their jobs, the people that were demonized, the people that were called anti-science or conspiracy theorists, I think are owed a big apology by most of Western mainstream media and all of these scientists that claim they were all about the science and then kept changing it without saying, you know, without any real truth or honesty in it. And the truth is they don't know. They're still experimenting. This was a pandemic. Everybody was scared. We get that. And you know what? Saying, look, this is better than nothing would have convinced a lot of people to take it. But they forced it. They mandated. They yeah. said, this will do it. And that wasn't the truth. And now here they are. Dosed up, Paxlovid it up, and still have COVID. Amen, so that's, Kim. That's my <laughs> Amen. Maybe your maybe your last. You said uh, before we started filming that you hope this gets to be your last I, COVID yes. radar. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm hoping. Yes, I keep saying all. that. I want right. this to be my last time I have to talk about this. But just the hypocrisy is so glaring, and especially with it being Fauci. And I am glad he's he's at least transparent with his symptoms. But still, then saying no, but it it was the Paxlovid that kept me out of the hospital. What? 
How do you know? Yeah. How, how was it not the it? first, second, third, or fourth dose of the vaccine that kept you out? What was it? Right. We don't know. Oh. But he is 81. Oh, he's good. high risk. So glad he's still alive, I suppose. You know, you know, he's he seems okay. to be doing well. And right, right. We want that to continue. We want people uh, to survive. Everyone, yes. We want people to survive this horrible disease. Have it over with. Uh, go away. Yes. So <laughs> thank you, Kim. And we'll have more rising right after this. Oh, no, we're doing the. Oh, we have to oh do the I'm end sorry. Of show. Oh, I don't have the. I didn't pull it up. Sorry. I don't have it on mine either. End of show. Why don't we just have Brianna do this? Okay. I'm going to talk to myself. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll pass the baton to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. Yes, they'll go over the breaking uh, SCOTUS rulings that came out of today's decisions. Sorry, that was really weird syntax. <laughs> what are we doing here? And I, I got nothing on my screen, so. One more time. Yeah. Does Brianna just want to read the whole I can't thing. Even. Just let Brianna carry it. You just, you just read the whole thing, Brianna, and the and the. And like Kim's the... part two. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay. Or, yeah. Or you oh, you got to... your. Okay. Kim will I, I don't have anything. Sure I don't have anything. Okay. Brianna's just gonna read the whole thing, and then we'll have you on the end for a. a I just can't see my Skype. Okay. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, Mike prompter. Thank you. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll pass the baton to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. They'll go over the breaking SCOTUS rulings that came out today. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, thanks for tuning in. It'll be nice to be reunited next week. <laughs> Robbie? <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be back in studio uh... Next week, if I survive my trip to Aspen, I did see while we were filming three deer like ran. Past, so I'm, I'm staring at this like window porch kind of area. And so they were right in front of the window. They were like six feet away. It was it was hard not to go. Oh, my gosh, deer. So cool. <laughs> so I'm going to go out into the wilderness, have a little adventure. Okay. But, uh, I'll see you all next week. All right. Sounds great. All right, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for watching. Bye bye.